0: Welcome to the South Fellowship podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning again. Um, My name's still Alex. I'm still one of the pastors here, I I believe, even though my counting left something to be desired, apparently, but that doesn't seem a fireable offence for a pastor. We're gonna jump into a a new series. Last year, for those of you that have been with us for a while, we spent a chunk of the summer working through this book, Luke, one of the biographies of Jesus' life, sometimes called one of the Gospels. And we didn't go through it just in this linear fashion. What we did is we we went through and we looked at every time uh, Jesus sits down at a table with someone. What we discovered was this. In Luke's account of Jesus' life, Jesus is always going to, he's always going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. Food plays a huge part of Luke's account. And some of you are like, man, I feel closer to Jesus than I ever have before. If he's like this this party person that goes to meals all the time, I, I, I kind of resonate with that a chunk. And so we followed as Jesus did this as a practice. And what I want to to do was just spend a few weeks going back to this why because it was a series that I heard from lots of you uh, things like this this has given me an understanding of why I feel like I should live my life a certain way for some of you that invite people in you love to invite people on the outsiders and Jesus meals were different than lots of people of his day Uh, He he invited people who found themselves on the margins. So for some of you, it resonated deeply with you. And then others, I heard something like this. This is how I would long to live my life. This is how I feel challenged to live my life. And then we know this to be true about sermons or about teachings, right? We get maybe a year down the line and we're like, "Ah, I was meant to do that. I meant to put that into practice and it it just got lost somewhere in the busyness of life. So sometimes just tagging a series gives us a chance to go back and say, okay, I'm I'm gonna try this again. I'm gonna process this in a new way. What we can say is this, this early church movement that took over from Jesus after Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, they did things that were unusual for their time too. They, They didn't just copy Jesus in the traditional way that a student might copy his rabbi, they added some very practical elements and gathered repeatedly together. This is my sort of thesis about this early church, this group that gathered after Jesus was out of the scene. The earliest expression of church looked more like a table than an auditorium. They gathered in those kind of spaces. It looked more like a circle than a line. Yes, we sit in lines today, but that's really a practical expression. They seemed to gather more in something that looked like circles. And of course, it's Circle Sunday, so sign up for a circle, and then you'll be like the early church. Good for you. And and then they looked more like the margins than the centre. I maybe said something like this, Jesus took people, people from the margins and, and brought them into the centre, allowed them to sit with him, but maybe it was even more extreme than that. Maybe he actually took the centre and moved it to the margins, the fringe of society, and the early church did that too. And, and this is what happened when they did that. In about AD 100, there were 25,000 people following the way of Jesus. And I think from 33, 34 AD to 100 AD, maybe they started with 100, 150 teenagers and and young adults. To get to 20,000 is quite impressive, but by three centuries later, to be 20 million, sociologists are left a little bit baffled as to how does a movement spread that quickly, how did it take off to that degree, how did they do this? And I would suggest one of the things we're going to discover today is that this somewhat forgotten festival of Pentecost, this day that we celebrate today, is potentially the reason for that, that maybe this thing is the thing that drove all of that. Yes, there was some apostolic genius. Yes, there was some practical structures that they introduced were important. But there's something about what happened on this day, this forgotten day, that empowered everything that happened over those first few hundred years. And I would suggest it's supposed to empower what we do today Day. But before we get there, we've got to go back a little bit. So we're going to start in a strange place. We're going to start in this book called Exodus and this is the moment that anyone planning the service is like wow okay we're going to Exodus this is going to take longer than the 20 minutes that I have to share this message so let's let's speed this up we're going to go quick Exodus 12 verse 14 to 16 this is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord a lasting ordinance what day are they talking about this book Exodus is a celebration of how a group of people spent 400 years as slaves, 400 years trapped in a nation they didn't belong in and God miraculously rescued them and brought them out And, and when that happened, God's message to them was remember it Celebrate it, don't forget it. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day, do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. All you may do is rest, cook food, eat food together and celebrate together because I did something special on this day and this thing, this thing is worth remembering. So little jump forward when Jesus dies on this day on this day called Passover and creates a new Passover that too is worth celebrating so we gather together on resurrection Sunday and we celebrate hard and we enjoy ourselves because it is worth remembering so rescued from a land called Egypt a group of people maybe about two million come out from slavery into something new and God says celebrate celebrate the festival of unleavened bread the Passover because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come But there's something complex about this story, something that maybe doesn't make sense or at least something that causes some tension because it's not just people that will call themselves Jewish that leave with this group. There's a whole other bunch of people as well. In Exodus 12, a little further, verse 37, we're told this, the Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth. You can look those names up if you want to nerd out on some stuff, but we're not going to get in there now. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock and both flocks and herds. That word, many other people, is this word Erev-rav. It means a mixed Multitude—an English word would be a riffraff, a motley crew, a strange group that gathered together and followed them out of slavery. They were a mixed multitude, maybe two million people, after 400 years of slavery. And so, what does what does a group of people that are all sorts of different backgrounds all mesh together after 400 years? What kind of questions do they ask themselves? I would suggest the fundamental question at this point that they might ask is this, is is who are we? what's our identity what what do we believe what kind of rules do we follow how do we see ourselves as a group of people because that for most people for any nation seems to be a a central thing a central statement that we make even when we don't realise we're making it and and I may have mentioned that I'm English uh, once or twice I can't remember I I may have thrown it out there at some point I'm not British I'm English Um, We have a saying back at home, British by birth, English by the grace of God. That that doesn't mean it's not good to be Irish or Scottish or Welsh, but it's a different thing to be English. And of course, there's identity markers for any kind of nation uh, that you might uh, come across. And so I have here um, a delightful cup of our great tea. Uh, which you might call the, the single identity marker of Englishness. It's drinking tea right? Sadly, I'm drinking English tea in a cup that says Made in Japan, uh, which seems, seems a little bit off-message, but, but, but there is something about that visual, that idea um, of Englishness that I might add this picture right here couldn't find any crumpets but I'm going back to England soon so I'll make sure to bring some there there is that just I'm just gonna have a moment while you guys it was far better in the first service Uh, it's a little cold now, well little stewed. But, but there is that Englishness to drinking tea, and as a cheap little plug, Aaron and I do a podcast called Guys Drinking Tea. If you've not listened to it, you should drop in and listen to it. There is drinking tea that is English, but there's a whole bunch of other identity things that go along with it. I threw up a couple of very British problems here. A, a picnic, what is a picnic? It's sitting on the corner of a blanket with a selection of beige snacks, trying to ignore your aching back as a wasp attacks your face, Your plastic cup of warm drink falls over and a dog runs at you while the owner shouts, he's friendly! And of course, it's raining because it's in Britain. Uh, And then this one below, uh, no harm done. What is the translation of the words no harm done? You have caused complete and utter chaos. I have had the joy of explaining to uh, American people going to work in a environment why British people are inherently polite all the time even when they're saying something they consider to be deeply uh, offensive so if I were to say in an office environment that was probably my fault I mean it was absolutely your fault and I'm just being nice about it one of the things Laura and I noticed really early on was that there were things that we said that were were different Uh, the first time we met I said to her what do you call those stairs that move And she looked at me and she said, "Uh, an escalator. And I said, really? We call them moving stairs. And of course, I was just (laughs) playing with her, but she found that deeply frustrating. And and yet there's a complexity to those things because I've been over here for 10 years now and have started to say things that I could never have imagined saying just 10 years ago. The first time that I referred to football as soccer was like a deep wound in my heart. Just... (laughs) the things, ways that I pronounce things that don't make sense back home anymore and not long ago I went back to do uh, an English wedding and my uncle who was part of the wedding party came up to me and said where have you got this awful American twang from and I said I didn't realise that I had there's there's a, a change in me over 10 years there's a change for my wife Laura after being married to me for 10 years there's a, just over that period things start to adapt a little bit what about 400 years what about this group of people after 400 years what, what's their identity 400 years in Egypt with Egyptian gods Egyptian religion 400 years been forced to work in Egyptian society and now 600,000 a million however many of this era of rather poured into the mix as well who are this group of people who are they and now they sit in the middle of a desert having been rescued dramatically and they have no identity. What is their identity? And then we're told this in verse 19, on the first day of the third month, Pentecost as it happens, the Israel, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai, they enter a place when, that nobody owns. They, they enter a place where there is no government, there is no other religion, nobody owns Sinai. This is where this God will meet them and he'll give them 10 laws to give them some sense of identity. In fact, there's a load of other laws as well, but 10 principal, core, foundational ones that for the first time, give them a sense of, no, this is how we operate as a group of people. This is who we are. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. If you obey my covenant, this is the thing that is their identity marker. These laws, 619 of them altogether, are what God's people at this time look like. When they ask who are we, this in this moment is God's, answer for them. There is a journey that they make. There is Passover, this moment of rescue, this moment of celebration. Fifty days pass, and then there is this day Pentecost when they are given this law. They are a mixed multitude asking, who are we? They receive their identity when they receive the law. Of course, we know if you know the story, it doesn't always work out so well. This people struggle to obey all of the rules that they have been given. Jeremiah, this prophet will say this, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. This is the new thing that's coming, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will will be my people. There is a new thing to come, but this old story, its foundation, is based on Passover. There's a rescue, there's a 50-day period of waiting, and then Pentecost is when they get their identity. Imagine for a second what it felt like to be someone following Jesus when you've been on this journey, when on Passover your, your Messiah, your Rabbi has been killed and then miraculously he, he comes back to life again. It's Passover all over again, it's a new type of Passover. There is a new story of the defeat of death. There is a new story of a different kind of slavery which we, are people, which we are rescued from. And just like with the old one, the idea is celebration. Remember this day, everything changed on this day. But then Jesus drops in and out with different appearances. Sometimes he's there and sometimes he's not. We just spent six weeks looking at all the times he appears to different people. And then he goes for good. He says, I'm going back to my father. And from your perspective, that's wherever that is, whatever that looks like. But he's no longer present. And you're told to wait. There's another thing to come. Just wait wait, and I wonder if you were a thinking person, whether there was part of you that started to wait and count off those days, and and suddenly there's this awareness that this other big festival is coming, this day where you celebrate the giving of the law, and Jesus has told you to wait, and these people were told to wait, and I wonder if there's part of you that's like, "Ah, I wonder if this is the day we're waiting for. And on Pentecost morning, you wake up and the whole of the city is turned over to celebration and to a party and a remembering of what it was for God to give his people an identity. It's a different celebration to Passover, but it's still a celebration nonetheless. And you wait as this group of people that are told to wait. And then this is what happens. Acts chapter two, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Sounds spectacular, right? All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it then each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontius and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Remember, this is an age where parchment was expensive and ink was expensive, and he isn't just giving you a list of names because he needs to fill space. Is showing you that from every part of the world that Jewish people had ended, they have now come back, that God is about to start something that's going to spread all over the world, that this will be the hub of the movement that goes from 20,000 people in AD 100 to 20 million people in AD 310. This is a moment that's going to spark a change in the world. And the question that they have is, what does this mean? Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? What is happening in this moment is a question we might ask as well. Because as followers of Jesus, what we tend to do is we tend to land on Passover. We tend to land on death and resurrection. We tend to use words that sound important like justification and redemption. And those words are important, yes. But with just Passover and no Pentecost, it seems like Jesus would say something is missing. It would seem like Jesus said to wait for a reason. And if we don't experience whatever this thing that he's talking about on Pentecost is, whatever this moment is they experienced, then it seems like we may have missed something too. Because I would suggest just in the same way this people came out of Egypt and they waited 50 days and then they received their identity, I would suggest the same thing is happening to this group of people right now. They receive their identity when they receive the spirit. This is the thing that shapes who they are. And for the first time in history, religion is no longer about how you do stuff on the outside. It's about something that happens internal that changes you there and it begins to work its way from the inside to the outside. And there's a tension, right? Because this word spirit, it maybe causes... Some questions, some problems, some some moments where we're not sure on what ground we stand anymore because we understand Father, we have some kind of concept. We understand Son, we understand Jesus and we kind of maybe have a mental picture of what he looks like. But when I say Spirit, well, what does that mean? That's so much... Vega, Phyllis Tickle says this, we must admit to ourselves and to everybody else that there is no aspect of creed or Christianity that makes Christians more uneasy today than does the whole area of the existence, reality and workings of God in the person of the Holy Spirit couple that with something that Gordon Fee says, one of the the best New Testament writers in the world, the Spirit as an experienced and living reality was the crucial matter for Christian life from beginning to end. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, this Spirit thing is for you and shapes you And transforms you and now you may be familiar with the term Pentecostal and it may make you uncomfortable it may create all sorts of images of me wearing a white suit and swaying around on stage and all those different things and things that you're like I've been there maybe or I've seen the abuse of that I don't love that I don't want that and and what I would say is this you can follow Jesus and choose not to be Pentecostal but you can't follow Jesus and miss Pentecost because this thing Is for everybody. This thing is for everybody. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. I love to imagine what conversations might look in heaven uh, because it just, again, it just tweaks my creativity. and And I can picture this conversation that looks like something like planning the redemption, planning this new Passover that we've talked about. And I can see this conversation going like, and then we'll leave it to them. We'll leave this church to shape the world. We'll leave them to reach everyone. We'll leave them to plan, and we'll leave them to do all of those things. We'll leave this group of people to live in the way of Jesus. And I can picture the conversation between the father and the son going something like, yeah, they're definitely going to need some help with that. That is the whole basis of this idea. This way of Jesus thing that we put on the wall outside and we declare as something we as an organisation believe in, you can't do that by yourself. I can't do that by myself. I am fundamentally flawed and and powerless to make that happen. And yet I wonder how many of us in any given moment, in any church around the world, would would say we were made up of people that feel somewhat guilty about not doing as well as we would hope. Somewhat like we've got a list of stuff that we're still trying to track with and, and we feel like we're not ticking as many boxes as we would like. Still feel like we're somewhat drumming up the power and the ability to live out the way of Jesus and maybe have this lurking suspicion somewhere that Jesus is not particularly happy with how we're doing in living it all out. One of the images, or a couple of images I love to show people, to ask us questions to reflect on our own journey. And I would say this applies to our what we might call our spiritual journey, but, but to life in general. Which of these would you describe would say would you say describe how you live out life right now? How I live out life right now, and I know which the answer is for me. Would it look like this? Or would it look like this? Would it look like this? or this. I would say this sort of encompasses, describes, is descriptive of how many of us do spiritual life, do following Jesus, and how many of us live everyday life in general, and I'm not too sure you can really split those two. I feel like we're a bunch of people that work so hard to make it happen, and we get left with that feeling of general exhaustion, and general, I don't know if I can keep doing this and yet when I read this story in Acts when I get to the heartbeat of that story it seems like this thing is more what they had in mind is sailing hard work does it require activity I'm sure it does I've never done it so I don't I don't know for sure but I'm gonna say it probably requires something but but the inherent source of the power the inherent source of the ability to move is out of your control you are simply harnessing it whereas this thing is simply Effort simply you working. The message of this Acts kernel is that somewhere we are given this identity as a group of people, you are not identified by how you live. That will change as you follow Jesus, but the, the key identity marker is this, something changes there. Something is dramatically different because Passover didn't stop at Passover, it led to Pentecost, which changes everything. Which group do you identify with do you identify with a group that found its identity in the law that worked really hard that had a list it was always tracking with or do you find yourself identifying with this new group of a few teenagers a bunch of young adults that began a movement that went from 20,000 people in AD 100 to 20 million people in AD 310 which sounds more like the way you and I live. Because that, second, that first thing, that was always impossible. This is Paul writing in Romans 8, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. That, that is to say, all of the hard-working stuff and the need to hard work hard has been taken care of. Who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that word flesh in Greek is this word sarks, and it's interesting because it could mean like the fleshly desires or something like that, but, but it also can just mean human effort those that are just plodding on, those that are just keeping going, those like by their own stick to are making it happen. It seems like we have a choice between that and life in the Spirit, which looks very different. So as we move to this time where we're going to baptize some wonderful people who have made that decision to follow Jesus, what we know is this, this external marker is important. It matters, it is a big deal, but it doesn't matter because of it. It matters because of what happened there before. It's because transformation was made possible by Jesus' death and resurrection. But the gospel, this good news story we talk about all the time, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop at Passover. It keeps moving through 50 days of waiting and it lands in Pentecost and that changes everything. It's no wonder that this famous John the Baptist character said something like this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I would suggest this movement happened not because of Jesus' death and resurrection. That started it, but it was made possible by this spirit thing. They lived in Jesus' way by the Spirit's sway. And I don't mean sway. It may be the first dictionary definition, the way you see people worship, where they get all like swayy and all those kinds of things. I've seen some of you do it. You get there and you get in your moment and you sway from side to side. I I mean sway in the sense of control. I mean sway in the sense of power. Jesus' death and resurrection make our forgiveness possible, but his great gift is this gift of the Spirit. When Paul writes in the New Testament, justification by faith is not his central argument. His central thing is life in God's spirit. That is his great gift. Jesus' death means everything and it leads to this spirit moment that gives us our identity. This is who we are. The thing on the wall you cannot do by yourself. You weren't made to do it by yourself. You were made to do it with his power, with his strength, with his energy and that is how transformative it gets in Acts chapter 2 we read just on that day those who accepted his message were baptized about 3,000 were added that day this is the moment where they wait and the spirit comes and that changes everything let's pray Jesus thank you for your goodness to us through death through resurrection through passover thank you for a moment that you created a new passover You took an old story and you centered it around you. You gave new life to us. Thank you for the gift that comes after that, this gift of the Spirit that empowers us, that gives us our identity. We are people of your Spirit. As we do baptisms, as we celebrate this moment of transformation, thank you for these three people that will step into that tank Thank you for this moment where we'll celebrate your gift of new life and we'll celebrate the fact that that spirit lives in them and is changing them from the inside out. Amen. If God is working your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.